All right, this afternoon we're studying the two stanzas of Psalm 119, Pei and Tzadi, verses 129 to 136, and 137 to 144. In the first of those two stanzas, the main idea, I think, is found in verse 129. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. And the rest of the stanza then develops that idea of the wonderfulness of God's commandments. Verse 130 tells us especially why they are wonderful, the entrance of your words gives light. And uh, verses 129, the first, the second part of that verse, 131 and 136, give us the psalmist's personal response to this perceived wonder of God's testimonies. And then verses 132 to 135, petitions based on his understanding that the testimonies are wonderful. So if you outlined the, the stanza, I think you'd do it something like this. Um, verses 129 and 130 are uh, one unit. Then 131 is a personal response. And 130, let's do that this way, 132 to 135 petitions. And then 136 is another personal response. So it's, it's a, a very orderly uh, construction of the stanza, but uh, not chiasm. Uh, you could say there's an envelope structure here between verses 131 and 136, but it's still constructed in a very regular fashion, and I think this is the sort of thing we see in Psalm 119, that the stanzas are constructed in different ways um, according to the psalmist's uh, desire to emphasize particular ideas or whatever it may be. So uh, we're going to begin with those first two verses, 129 and 130, and talk about the wonderful testimonies of the Lord. Your testimonies are wonderful. That's the uh, statement we're um, going to look at first. And, of course, what he means is that the testimonies of the Lord are wonderful to us. They are objects of wonder or objects of amazement to us. And they are objects of amazement or of wonder to us because of all those different characteristics of the commandments that he's been talking about throughout this psalm. He's been talking about their simplicity, about their depth, about their wisdom, about their perfection, about their goodness, about how they give life, and all these different things that the psalm celebrates. And it's those characteristics of the testimonies of the Lord which make this testimonies wonderful but there's more to this, I think, than uh, just the idea of being wonderful. 
Actually, the Hebrew word that he uses here in that first line is a noun. Your testimonies are wonders. Your testimonies are wonders. And it's the same word that you find, for example, in Psalm 77, verses 11 and 14. In Psalm 77, verse 11, I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. And then in verse 14, you are the God who does wonders. You have declared your strength among the peoples. And of course, he's talking there in Psalm 77 about the great works of the Lord done on behalf of his people as he brought them out of Egypt. These are the the wonders that the Lord has performed. He takes that same word now, the works of the Lord are wonders, and he applies it to the testimonies, and he says, your testimonies are wonders. They too are great things that God has uh, revealed, that God has given to us. They are things that reflect his own power, his own wisdom, his own righteousness, all these different characteristics of the Lord, they reflect the majesty and glory of his being, and therefore they are wonders. Just as his works are wonders, so his testimonies are wonders. And it's because they are inherently wondrous that we find them wonderful, that we are amazed by them and wonder at them. There's even a suggestion, I think, in that word wonder, that these things are really beyond our comprehension, that they are not uh, accessible to the natural mind, that we need the work of the Spirit of God in us in order to grasp these things. There's some relationship in that word to the New Testament word mystery, I think. That we can know these things, these wonders of the testimonies of the Lord only by his work of revelation. The natural mind does not receive them. The natural mind does not love them. The natural mind does not understand, really understand, those testimonies of the Lord. Does not at least understand the revelation of the power and glory and righteousness of God in them. So your testimonies are wonderful and Uh, that statement reflects not only our amazement at the depth and power and righteousness of the commandments, but also our gratitude to God for giving us such wonderful things. But then in verse uh, 130, the psalmist uh, gives us the, the main reason, at least in this stanza, why he is celebrating the wonderfulness of God's testimonies. The entrance of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. The word simple there is the same as that word uh, that's found so frequently in the Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, and it means really the same thing as what it means there. He's talking about those who are naive, about those who are untrained, about those who are inexperienced, about those who are uh, in some measure ignorant, Notice he doesn't talk about himself specifically here. He talks about uh, the simple in general, but he would certainly include himself among the simple. Those who are untrained, ignorant, naive, simple in understanding with regard to the commandments of the Lord. 
Anyone, of course, who claims to be wise with regard to the commandments of the Lord, according to the teaching of Proverbs, would be automatically a fool. We, in order to be wise, we must begin with that basic proposition that we are ourselves, in ourselves, foolish, or at best, simple. If we do not begin there, if we begin rather with the idea that we are wise, we are uh, being fools, and we are binding ourselves in our folly without hope of escape. So the simple are those then who don't understand and who know then also that they don't understand and who look to the Lord's testimonies, the wonderful testimonies of the Lord, to give them light. The entrance, notice too that he says, the entrance of your words gives light. Not just your word gives light, but the entrance. God gives his word to us, within us. He writes his word on our hearts. He he changes our hearts of stone to hearts of flesh so that those hearts may contain the commandments of the Lord, may dwell upon those commandments of the Lord, may delight in those commandments of the Lord. And it's by the entrance of these words then that our simplicity becomes wisdom, the daily entrance of those words that our simplicity is changed to wisdom, our ignorance to knowledge. They are wonderful testimonies that the Lord has given us then. And by them we come to understand and to have light. Now, the second part of the stanza that we want to look at then is those verses 131 and 136. And we need to include in that, of course, the last part of verse 129, which is also about his personal response to the commandments. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. This is how he reacts to his perception of the wonder of God's testimonies. My soul keeps them. These testimonies are clearly not a matter of a burden to him, clearly not a heavy yoke for him to bear. He looks at those testimonies, he sees how wonderful those testimonies are, and his immediate response to the wonderful character of those testimonies is, my soul keeps them. He wants those testimonies, he seeks those testimonies, he takes those testimonies into himself. As he says in Verse 131, I opened my mouth and panted, for I longed for your commandments. The uh, picture he gives there is very similar to the picture we have in Psalm 42, verse 1. Psalm 42, verse 1, is, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? You have this same panting and longing and thirsting for the commandments of God here now in Psalm 119. Just as his soul longs for God in Psalm Psalm 42, so his uh, soul longs for the commandments of God here in Psalm 119. He pants after those commandments like a deer pants for the water brooks. 
He longs to take them into himself to receive that light and understanding which they alone are able to give. And then in verse 136, he looks outward. This is the other part of his response to the wonderful character of God's commandments. He looks outward from himself. He observes men in general. And he says, they don't keep your law. He sees how men reject the law of God. We've talked about this in earlier stanzas too, how he is grieved by the fact that men don't keep the law of God. And here he says he's overwhelmed with sorrow because men do not keep his law. Rivers of water run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. They dishonor that law. They dishonor God. They do not understand the psalmist's great love for those commandments, his delight in them. And this grieves the psalmist, gives him great sorrow. And then finally we look at the petitions in verses 132 to 135. The petitions he makes. These petitions are all for himself. Notice that. He doesn't make petition for the simple of whom he's spoken in 130. He doesn't make petition for men in general of whom he's spoken in 136. He makes petition for himself. Look upon me and be merciful to me as your custom is toward those who love your name. Not only are they personal petitions that he makes here, but I think we should see that they flow naturally. There's a, um, a, an order to these petitions which we need to uh, get hold of. And he puts grace first. He says, look at me in my simplicity. Consider this simplicity which belongs to me. And be merciful or be gracious would be better. Be gracious to me. Show me your grace. That is that favor which I do not merit, which is a free exercise of your goodness towards me. Let that be shown to me. And let that be according to your custom toward those who love your name. So he looks at others who love God's name and he says, Customarily, this is how you deal with them. This is your, your, the pattern of your behavior towards those who love your name. And I want to be a participant in that grace and that loving kindness which you show toward those who love your name. Let me see it as well. Uh, this is uh, a characteristic of God in all his dealings then with those who love him, that he is gracious towards them. And he looks upon them and he is gracious to them. And then in the next verse he says, and here's how I would like to experience your grace. This is what I want from you in that grace which you show towards me. Direct my steps by your word or establish my steps in your word. There's a path for me to walk. It's a sure path. It's the path of life. It's a good path. Therefore, I want to walk in that path Put my feet on that path and keep them there, on that path. Establish my steps there in the path of your word. And the other 
part of the verses, the other side of this coin, let no iniquity have dominion over me. That is, don't let me stray away from that path into the bogs and mires and pits and marshes of sin, into death and ruin. Don't let me depart from them, from the way of your commandments, and don't let the iniquities which I sometimes commit have dominion over me. The word that he uses there is a word that even carries the sense of domineering, a kind of negative connotation to that word. (coughs) Excuse me. If you look at Nehemiah 5 verse 15, you can see, I think, a little bit of that negative connotation of that word. Um, The former governors, Nehemiah is talking here, who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people. And that you get the sense of the, the servants domineering the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. This, this word then has that kind of negative connotation of domineering. And you should be reminded here of Romans 6 where Paul says when we obey sin, we become the slaves of sin. He says, don't let sin domineer over me. Don't let sin exercise this uh, unfriendly and hostile rule over me which destroys me. Redeem me from the slavery and dominion and bondage of sin. But he has another obstacle too. There's not only the obstacle that his feet have a tendency to stray from the uh, way of God's word, but he has enemies also who uh, seek to obstruct him in his pursuit of that way. And so he says... In verse 134, redeem me from the oppression of man. I have internal problems with keeping the commandments. Redeem me from that bondage. But I have external problems also with keeping those commandments. Redeem me from the oppression of man. That I may keep your precepts. Don't let my enemies then turn me aside from this way which I must walk. And finally then in verse 135 he returns to the idea of grace, expressing it now with the words, Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. Make your face shine according to that blessing which the priests pronounced in the Old Testament the grace, uh, the countenance of the Lord shining upon his people with his grace and his favor towards them. Let that grace shine upon me and let it shine upon me by the teaching of your statutes. So notice then that in these petitions he's completely focused on the idea that he wants to keep the commandments of God, he wants to walk in the way of the statutes of God, but he needs the Lord's help. He can't do it by himself. He's making petitions to the Lord, and all these petitions have as their goal, help me to keep your commandments. Help me to walk in that way. Teach me. 
Prevent my enemies from obstructing me in that way. Clear the way for me so that I may walk only in that way. His whole desire, the whole desire of his heart is set on keeping those commandments of the Lord. He needs that help of the Lord, of course, as it comes to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the grace of God to us. So when he says, look upon me and be merciful to me, as your custom is toward those who love your name, he's talking about God's grace in Christ. When he says, make your face shine upon your servant, he's talking about how God makes his face shine upon us in Christ. In fact, how he made his face shine upon his servant Christ first, in order that his face might also shine upon us. And through Christ, then, we ask him to teach us his statutes and to establish our steps in his way. By the grace of Christ, we join Christ in his way of obedience to the commandments of God. Because he confessed, your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. So that's the first of the two stanzas. Now we want to look at the the second of those stanzas. And again, I want to put a little outline on the board here. But the stanza is again quite different from the one we've just been talking about. And it's very different because if you look through that stanza, you'll see that there's only one petition in it. And it comes at the very end of the stanza, the last line, give me understanding and I shall live. That's the only petition in the whole stanza. The rest of the stanza consists of two kinds of statements or two kinds of observations. First, there are observations about the righteousness of the Lord and of his testimonies. And then there are also observations about himself in relation to those righteous testimonies of the Lord. And what you see here is an alternating back and forth between those two kinds of statements. So if we outline it, we do it this way. First, verses 137 and 138 are about the righteousness of the Lord and his testimonies. Then you get 139, which is about himself, 140, about the righteousness of the Lord and his testimonies again, righteousness, I'll just put that in there, 141 is about himself again, 142 is about the righteousness of the Lord and his testimonies, 143 is about himself again and then 144 is about the testimonies 144 is about the righteousness of the testimonies and the final line is a petition so you see this this alternating back and forth between those two subjects Again, you have this this clear, clearly defined structure, clearly defined um, order of the verses, but not really what we would expect, not the sort of way we would order things. We would probably take these 
three statements about self and put them at the end, just before the petition, and combine all the statements about the righteousness of the Lord and his testimonies in one section. We don't structure things the way the Hebrews did, the Jews did, but it's, a, it's nevertheless a very orderly kind of structure again. But it, when you see that, these uh, statements, not only uh, these four statements in 140, 142, and 144, three statements in those, but the two first verses are about the righteousness of the Lord and his testimonies. It's very easy to see what the main idea of the stanza is too, isn't it? The main idea is that the, test, the Lord and his testimonies are righteous. You could say that the verse, first verse again expresses the main idea. Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. So let's talk first about those the righteousness of the Lord and his judgments, then about what the psalmist has to say about himself, and then the, uh, talk about the petition with which he closes the stanza. The righteousness of the Lord is mentioned twice in the stanza. First, in verse 137, Righteous are you, O Lord. And then in verse 142, Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. So he, he deliberately calls our attention to this particular attribute of the Lord, his righteousness. Now it's very important when we're talking about the righteousness of the Lord, the attribute of the righteousness of the Lord, that we not get into our heads the idea that the righteousness of the Lord means his conformity to the law. Because he precedes the law. The law is his law given by him. He makes the law. And therefore, you cannot talk about his righteousness as conformity to the law. When we talk about our righteousness, it's very simple to define. It's conformity to the law of God. But when we talk about God's righteousness, we can't define his righteousness in that way. Because the law is after him, comes from him. And in the law, he is revealing to us that righteousness which is inherent in him. In fact, in his law, he's saying to us, be like me. He's saying to us, when I created you in the beginning, in my image, in righteousness, I created you like myself, and now I command you in my law to be righteous as I am righteous, to be holy as I am holy, as you find over and over again in Leviticus, to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, as our Lord Jesus Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount. So he's, his righteousness is first, he reveals his righteousness to us, and in that, by his law, and in that law, he's saying to us, you have to be like me. This is how you become like me, how you imitate me, by adhering to my commandments. But that means, then, that when we talk about the righteousness of God as an attribute in him, it's very difficult to define, isn't it? How do you, what, what do you say about that righteousness of God? If you can't say it's conformity to the law, but the law instead is conformity, conform to his righteousness, 
Well, how do you define that righteousness of God? Well, you can say, of course, that it means there's no sin in him, there's no unrighteousness in him, there's no darkness in him. That's quite a negative statement. But you can say that it means that his being and his works are by definition righteous. Whatever he does is automatically righteous because it proceeds from his righteous being. You can say he is the eternally, self-sufficiently, unchangeably, infinitely righteous one. You can say that his own being, he is in himself the definition of righteousness. You want to know what righteousness is, then you have to know who God is. You can say that this righteousness is essential to his being. You can't conceive of an unrighteous God. If righteousness were not his, he would not be God. But it still doesn't really tell us what the righteousness is. All we can know of that inherent righteousness of God is what he has revealed about that righteousness in his law. And he said to us, this is what I am like. I am the one God. I am the God who must be worshipped. I am the God who must be feared. I am the God who is faithful. I am the God who owns all things. I am. This is what he reveals to us in his law about himself. And he says, when I deal with you, then, I'll always deal with you according to this law. So there's an inherent righteousness, but as he applies his law to us, he's righteous, that is, he abides by his law in his dealings with us. His works are towards us are righteous works, never unrighteous works. And we can found ourselves on that consistent, unchangeable righteousness of God. Because he does not ever forsake his own righteousness. It's an everlasting righteousness as well, the psalmist says in verse um, 142. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. It does not change. So first of all, then he's talking about the righteousness of God. But then he also talks about the righteousness of God's law. Because the Lord is righteous in himself, his law is righteous. And this is what receives the emphasis. He really uses five different words for that righteousness of the law of God. Besides the word righteous, he uses the word upright, faithful, pure, and true. They all mean essentially the same thing. So to be have a righteous law is to have a law that is conformed to the righteousness of God's own being. A law that is upright, the basic idea of that word is that it's straight. You have that word used, in fact, in 1 Samuel 6, verse 12, if you want to see the basic idea of that word, 1 Samuel 6, verse 12. Then the cows, this is about the return of the ark to Israel from the land of the Philistines. Then the cows headed straight for the road to Beth Shemesh. They they didn't take any byways in order to get back to Beth Shemesh. They went there straight, as we would say, I went straight to my own house, or I went straight to 
wherever I was going. We didn't uh, take detours or uh, let any other errand distract us from the main errand that we were on. And when we talk about the straightness of God's commandments, we mean then that the commandments are straight as the Lord is straight. There's nothing twisted, bent, perverse, or crooked in the Lord. He is a straight, an upright Lord. And his commandments are as straight, as unbent, as uh, with lacking crookedness, lacking perversity, lacking twistedness, as he himself is straight and upright. The word faithful means, I think, that they are, like the Lord, unchangeable. The Lord is in his righteousness unchangeable. His commandments are also in their righteousness faithful or unchangeable. The law which he has given to us, which he has called us to obey, is the same law that he gave to Adam and Eve in the garden. Same law that he gave to Israel at Mount Sinai. And the same law by which we will have to live in the new heavens and the new earth. The righteousness of the Lord is like his own righteousness. It is faithful. The righteousness of the Lord's commandments, rather, is like his own righteousness. It is an unchangeable, a faithful righteousness. His law is also pure. And we have a beautiful statement of that purity of the law of the Lord, of the word of the Lord in Psalm 12. The words of the Lord are pure words like silver tried in a furnace of earth purified seven times. His law has all, it has no impurities in it. Men's laws are always a mix of righteousness and unrighteousness. They're always imperfect. They can never quite attain to the goal of a perfect righteousness. But God's commandments are pure, pure as silver refined seven times. And finally, they are truth. They are certain as his own being. They are not arbitrary. God did not say, I want these men I've created to have some laws to live by and invent a few laws for us to live by. But his law arose from the truth of his own being. And they are truth as he himself is true. And so his righteousness, the righteousness of his law is like his own righteousness in being everlasting. As he says in verse 144, the righteousness of your testimonies is everlasting. He's already said your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. 142, now he says the righteousness of your testimonies is everlasting. So this is what he means, the main idea then of the stanza, the righteousness of the Lord and the righteousness of his judgments. Now if we go back to our outline, we are up to the point where we're going to talk about those statements that he makes about himself in 139, 141, and 143. But we did pass over one uh, part of verse 140. You may have noticed that. Your word is very pure. 
He says in 140, therefore your servant loves it. That's also a very personal statement. Your servant loves it. We talked about how in the prior stanza he has love for the commandments of God because they are wonderful. Now he singles out of the wonders of the commandments of the Lord, the righteousness of those commandments, the purity of those commandments. And he says, it's because those commandments are pure that I love them. They have no taint of sin. They're faithful, sure guides for me. They have a radiant light that's unmarred by any darkness that gives light to my understanding. And I love them. And it's this love then that is driving him and the rest of his statements about himself in here. Let's look first at verse 139 then. My zeal has consumed me because my enemies have forgotten your words. There's another statement in the Psalms very similar to that. In Psalm 69, verse 9, the psalmist says, Because zeal for your house has eaten me up. Zeal for your house has eaten me up. He's talking there about how he loves the house of God and how he's consumed with his zeal to, uh, for that house of God. And that's illustrated for us, the Gospels tell us, in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ when he cleansed the temple. The, he drove out the buyers and the sellers. He overturned their tables with the money on them. He drove out the animals. Then he said to those buyers and sellers, the house of my father is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And his disciples noted that the zeal of his house, of the Lord's house, was eating him up. Well, it's that same zeal for the law of God, that is consuming the psalmist here. He looks around him and he sees that his enemies have forgotten the words of God. They totally ignore those words of God as if they do not exist and as if they have no bearing on them at all. And he's moved to zeal for the keeping and the defense of those testimonies of the Lord. His zeal consumes him. All his energies are consumed and exhausted by his zeal for the law of God. That's quite a statement, isn't it? How ready would we be to say, my zeal has consumed me because my enemies have forgotten your word. He says about himself in verse 141, I am small and despised. Yet I do not forget your precepts. And he's talking here about those same enemies. His enemies look at him and they dismiss him as insignificant and as contemptible. Even though he is zealously opposed to their forgetfulness of the Lord's law. And he says, even though I'm small and despised and unable to stand, therefore, by myself against them, I do not forget your, test, your precepts. They will not cause me to forget your precepts. I will not be turned aside. In fact, their very opposition to me, their very contempt of me, will make me cling ever more fervently to your precepts. And he says the same thing 
I think pretty much again in verse 143, trouble and anguish have overtaken me. This is the trouble and anguish that his enemies have brought on him. Yet your commandments are my delights. They will not diminish my delight in your commandments. In fact, as they trouble me and oppress me, still my delight will increase. I will love your commandments more and more. And in that, the light of then his love for the commandments, his petition at the end of the stanza is very uh, understandable. Give me understanding and I shall live. I delight in your commandments. I want to keep your commandments. I do not forget them. I love your commandments. My zeal for those commandments consumes me. Give me understanding. He can't do it. He can't understand by himself. He can't live in them by himself. He seeks the Lord's face. Give me understanding. And I shall live. That is, give me understanding. And I will walk in the way of life. Defined by your commandments. The commandments can't give him life. They don't have that power. But the commandments define the way of life. only if God gives him understanding will he be able to walk in that way. Now again, people of God, this is the word of our Lord Jesus Christ, who says, my zeal has consumed me. You see that zeal of the Lord Jesus Christ consuming him, not just in his cleansing of the temple, but in his giving of himself, giving himself to the bitter and shameful death of the cross to accomplish, first of all, the judgment of all wickedness, of all unrighteousness, to drive out of the kingdom and creation of God all those who will not live according to the commandments of God. Zeal for the house of God, zeal for God's righteousness drives his judgment of the wicked. But we see that same zeal operating as he gives himself for us to drive out from us darkness, unrighteousness, and sin and to conform us to his own righteousness and the righteousness of God revealed in him. He showed it in giving himself to death for us, and he continues zealously to conform us to the righteousness of his law. May God bless his word for our benefit.